Hello and welcome to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, as you probably can tell by the title, we are going to discuss the wonderful, uh, amazing, magical, and anything else you can call him, but the amazing film that is The Wizard of Oz, uh, the Victor Fleming classic from 1939. And the reason why I'm doing this one specifically as an entire episode is because Later on, throughout this podcast, I'm going to start doing the odd episode where I revisit uh, classical Hollywood filmmaking and I look at a specific film of my choosing and recommendation to you guys to watch or if you've already watched it, maybe watch it again or rediscover it um, and just really look at what makes it so great or if it's a controversial film, maybe, you know, how does it stand up by today's standards, etc., and, you know, is there anything else we can look into with this film? And just generally me talking to you about what I like about it, as well as what I don't like about it, maybe. Um, although that might be a bit of a hard job for this film, uh, because I do love it very much. Um, I think a lot of people do like this one, but I'm sure there's someone out there. I think if you don't like musicals, that's the reason why you don't like this film. Um, but I am obviously, like I said, talking about the wonderful uh Wizard of Oz, uh, from 1939, uh, directed by Victor Fleming, who you may recognise the name, film fans out there, if you know your classic Hollywood. Um, if you don't, then Victor Fleming is also known for directing one of the other big hitters from the exact same year, 1939, um, when it was released, uh, Gone with the Wind, um, the slightly more controversial film, um, compared to the wizard of oz and also it's the most probably the long one of the longest ones uh, up there with titanic as one of the great epics of cinema uh, in terms of its scope and just the fact that it's over to way over 2 hours long it's about 3 hours long i believe two and a half hours roughly um verging on 3 hours gone with the wind but um wizard of oz is definitely not that it's a little bit more easy family friendly viewing that you can watch and relax and sing along if you wish if you like your musicals but that's the point I'm going to make today I'm going to be talking all about The Wizard of Oz um, a quick little thing I've done a poll as some of you may have seen if you've been paying attention to our Instagram that's at take underscore 97 podcast um, if you've been paying attention to some of the stories I've been posting out on there we did a poll about which is your favorite um, or which ones uh, which is the better shall we say 1939 classic and that is between the wizard of oz and gone with the wind i shall get back to the result of that by the end of the podcast but keep that in mind think about which one you voted for or if you missed it and missed the chance think about which one you want to see as the the winner i know which one i'd want to see and um quite frankly it's probably obvious by the way i'm talking but i love the wizard of oz and it's a mixture of because it's not too long. I mean, I like a long film when it's good, but Gone with the Wind is on another level of length. Uh, but The Wizard of Oz is much more shorter. It's it's within that hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes remit of timing. And it's a fantasy, fantasy-based musical, like I said, directed by Victor Fleming. Uh, it had lots of production problems in terms of its director. Um, so Victor Fleming was kind of being bounced from pillar to post between the odd production and I believe that's why he was on Gone with the Wind for a long time then he was on um, Wizard of Oz or vice versa um, there's lots and lots of history to be read up upon that if you want to read into it go ahead after this podcast listen and learn from it but 
from now on I'm going to be going into spoiler territory as well. So if you haven't seen the film, maybe put the podcast on pause and then watch it and then come back and then listen. Um, But if you have watched it before, stay right where you are and let's get started. So this is obviously a series of episodes I'm going to be doing into classical Hollywood filmmaking. uh, So from 1930s to 1960s. This first one I'm starting off with is from the 30s, the very end of the 30s, actually, 1939. Um, and it's it's an interesting film because lots of people love, you know, I'm sure loads of people out there say, oh, you've got to love The Wizard of Oz, unless you hate musicals, like I said, um, or just fantasy-based stuff in general. Um, but this one really is something, something of a classic for everyone out there, especially American audiences, I would say, for all of our American listeners listeners out there, if you're listening. Um, it's very much something that you grow up with and that you learn about when you grow up so, as a kid's story, because this film is based on the L. Frank Baum books. Um, it says books, plural, in the opening of the uh, credits, I believe, because there's a dedication uh, on screen. They always used to do that in some of the old classic films as well, give little dedications and little notes before the film. As I discussed on the Film Noir podcast about the Naked City, they literally had the, one of the producing team, one of the producers, give a voiceover uh, as, describing how good the film was, which is a little bit, a little bit too sure of themselves, admittedly, but th- this one is more of a it's a bit like a dedication at the beginning of a book where you say, I dedicate this to my wife, my kids, my children, my lover, my mother, all these different things that novelists do. And it's kind of done that for the film because the film is, is said to, by the time of the 30s, the the actual books themselves had earned their place in history as the most beloved children's books, really. And that was quite... It took a while to get to that point, but they're so beloved that they felt, the studio felt they needed to put that at the beginning of the film and a note on the beginning of the film the entire beginning and also the ending of the film is shot in it's not black and white it's sepia so sepia tone is for those of you who don't know it's like black and it looks black and white to the like person who doesn't really care about film but it's it's like a drab brown wash all over the film so it's not it's not color but at the same time, it's not black and white. So it's like a weird brown drab wash over the over the film. And that's the... And I use the word drab quite um, specifically because it, the world of that Kansas farm that Dorothy Gale, who is played by Judy Garland, lives on is, is you know, it, it's something that you feel, oh, this looks really boring. She doesn't look like she's having fun at all. And all the adults around her, apart from the three farmhands, which I'll get back to later, the three farmhands who her who are her, like, best friends, as it were, in her life, other than, obviously, her Auntie M and Uncle Henry, um, they, they seem to be the only ones that have any fun with Dorothy, and sort of, you know, she, she's only a child, she's only a teenager, so she's, she's not an adult, uh, she's still got a load of, a lot of life to lead, so she's, you know, she's a bright spark within the middle of this quite drab world and then um as the story goes we have a conflict between uh Dorothy and the um I think her name is a uh, Miss Gulch 
the <laughs> the local busybody, um, played by Margaret Hamilton, who will become more relevant later on in the film, um, and she takes Toto away, uh, the little dog Toto, little black dog, uh, because Toto had been making a nuisance of himself in her backyard. Um, and essentially that's what happens with uh, the dog gets taken away, Dorothy gets really upset, uh, but Toto escapes and Dorothy thinks the world is so horrible, being so horrible to her because um, of one person's action against her dog, <laughs> that she uh, decides to go on the run and leave home and uh, and go somewhere else. And of course, before all this all happens, before, the, before Toto uh, gets taken away and then returns, she gets so disheartened with the world that she starts singing the song Over the Rainbow, so Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Um, and it's very, it's such a melancholic song. And that's what the people at the time, the studio system at the time actually thought. It was a very melancholic, very sad song. And it would put audiences off. So they initially said after the test screening of the film, oh, why do we have to have this drab, boring song at the beginning? Uh, of Her wailing out at the beginning, somewhere over the rainbow. We should just take that out of the equation. Because uh, otherwise audiences will lose interest immediately. Um, it was not the case uh and in the end the it did end up in the film as we know to this day 81 years later as of the recording of this podcast uh it's very it's a testament really it's something that sums up the film really somewhere over the rainbow and that's where dorothy goes over the rainbow because then we get the whole we get a twister uh in the kansas farm and it just wrecks the entire place up and the house goes flying off and we have a very very strange double exposed uh sequence of film where we have we have these men in a in a rowing boat going around in in so with the cows as well i mean because of the technology obviously the cows have been filmed separately um they're not actually doing they're not animated like they would be today and they're not they're just sort of standing there like the image has just been placed there but you know that's the technology of the time um to double expose the film so to put uh one film over the other and fade it together to make one um it's a very interesting um sequence and we also see um the woman from earlier so margaret hamilton's character and she turns into a witch. Uh, she's on her bicycle and then she suddenly turns into the wicked uh, a wicked witch on a broom which obviously if you know the film a lot of the character the actors in this film quite a lot of them play double roles so obviously Dorothy is the only Judy Garland plays Dorothy that's it uh Auntie M and Uncle Henry uh the same throughout as well I believe if I remember rightly I can't remember whether Uncle Henry plays another character I don't think he does um but as for the rest of the cast so we have Ray Bolger who plays uh, the wonderful, amazing, um, the first friend of Dorothy, um, the Scarecrow, the first person she meets on her travels down the Yellow Brick Road to get to the Emerald City. Um, Ray Bolger, he plays one of the farmhands in the in the previous section, in the sepia tone section of the film. Uh, then you've got uh, Jack Haley, who plays the lovely Tim Mann. I say lovely because, you know, in search for heart. And then obviously you've got Bert Lahr playing uh, the Cowardly Lion. Uh, and like I said, Margaret Hamilton plays the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, so that transformation of her in the double exposed, like, twister section of the film, becoming the witch, it foreshadows the fact that she is the Wicked Witch of the West for the rest of the film. Um, but quickly back to, before we get to meeting all the characters, obviously she gets whisked away into the land of Oz and the 
probably one of my most it's the most iconic scene of all time um from this film is the opening of the door of the house into Oz so and it's very clever how it was done so we go from the sepia very drab almost black and white but not um world and she opens the door Dorothy opens the door and we see color and as soon as she steps out we then see her in full color uh, in this, uh, you know, even her dress, which looks quite drab and boring as a costume concept in the first section of the film, in the opening, um, it's bright blue. And it really, it really conveys, you know, Dorothy's personality. It kind of does say a lot, really, for the power of colour in film, really, I feel. Because if you don't have colour in a film, you've got to rely heavy, heavily on the shadows. So for film noir, you relate to the shadows. Um, and the light, uh, you know, the contrast between light and dark. Um, but in terms of conveying personality, you've really got to rely on the acting. So I suppose that was probably a strength of black and white, that you have to rely on the acting. Um, but the use of colour really helps convey a, per a person's or a character's personality without them having to do too much work. So in some respects, that makes the actor's job a tiny bit easier. But then it also imposed a lot of, you know, issues and... and um, pressure I suppose on the production design and costume design people to convey this sense of you know the wider world in the use of colour um, but where the Wizard of Oz is concerned it really does go to the next level and the next level being bright colourful everything flowers trees everything and then obviously we get the immortal line Toto I don't think we're in Kansas anymore and it just goes from there. And obviously, that's probably the most obvious line ever. Because nowadays, if that was played to an audience, um, like as a brand new film nowadays, and you didn't know about, you know, that sort of thing, and it wasn't established in, like, our culture, as it were, of movies, you know, people would probably say, well, of course you're not in Kansas, you silly girl. You've just been, you've just been taken by a twister. And, you know, <laughs> this does not look like a Dust Bowl-based Kansas. And that that's the other thing as well. The sheer contrast between the Kansas farm, which is very, you know, it, it's very traditional of the, it's, I think it's supposed to represent, in the film version at least, the Great Depression, uh, like in the emotions filled with, uh, that people felt in the Great Depression in that time in history. So, um, you know, following the um, economic crash in America in the, in the end of the 1920s, the beginning of the 1930s, the film tries to convey that, and I suppose that's a way of, you know, lots of people theorise that going from the black and white, well, it's not quite black and white, but going from the black and white boring world of Kansas to the colourful fantasy world of the Land of Oz, that is, uh, some people would argue, and I could understand it a little bit, a metaphor for the American dream. Um, but then as the film goes on, obviously, you if you take that, reading literally the american dream dorothy gets you know her wish of going somewhere over the rainbow but then all of a sudden all she really wants to do is go back home because you know the american dream is not what she thought it was so her dream of going over the rainbow isn't quite what she expected like in some respects it is but then she she feels real a real connection to her home and where she come from and the fact that she actually quite likes her life as it were as it was on the farm and um not being chased by an evil green skinned 
witch uh, <laughs> who wants her ruby slippers. And that brings me to my next point. The reason why Technicolor was used for this film, practically mostly, above all else, not just for the Oz sequences, because it was a colourful fantasy land that they were basing, that they were like adapting from the books of L. L Frank Baum. Um, the reason, there's a lot of things they changed. So in the books, the ruby slippers are not ruby. They're actually silver slippers. But because silver just looks, you know, silver could look like silver and black and white, and they might as well just have shot the entire thing in black and white. Um, so they, the studio heads and, and producers decided to change the colour to red because red is quite a bright, bold colour. Uh, as many will know from various films, you know, it can mean lots of things, um, but uh, like revenge, death, blood, um, some more positive things like romance and stuff like that. But the root, because red was such a bright colour, they wanted to really use that, uh, use that colour as well as many others um, to benefit the use of Technicolor um, and that goes for the yellow brick road so the yellow in the yellow brick road so follow the yellow brick road another catchy song for you to get stuck in your head um, <laughs> and the emerald city so the bright green in the emerald city and the many so many colours used in the film there's even a section actually when they go to the the, the emerald city where they paint a horse and I, I don't really know how ethical that was um, it's not ethical at all by today's standards, but I don't know how safe the paint was for the poor horse, but the horse was painted about like five different colours. So he was painted pink, blue, green, red. Um, I'm sure he was even painted yellow. Uh, the, the poor horse, it was painted yellow, um, <laughs> which I suppose was probably... And the way they constructed that shot, it was meant to be, oh, look, it's magical. The horse changes. It's a horse of a different colour. Um is the phrase I believe they use in the film, but uh, I I just can't <laughs> I can't understand like how you would I don't think you'd be allowed to do that nowadays because of animal welfare uh, unless it was an animal safe paint I'm assuming no animals were harmed in the process of making that film but they didn't really make that clear that's something else in the system of Hollywood they didn't really make clear whether their treatment of animals was safe at all whereas you know you always see at the end of films in the 21st century or even in the 20th century where no animals were harmed in this production um but that one I don't I'm not too sure about that one that's something I'd have to do a bit of extra research on but you know that's the extent they went for the colors and obviously again green for the wicked witch of the west even though she was dressed in all black she had green skin and then uh, that was played by the lovely Margaret Hamilton. I say lovely. She was wicked to the core. Um, the actress was probably really nice. And I did read an interview once that she was very <laughs> disappointed. She was very intrigued. Oh, yeah, I want to be in The Wizard of Oz. That's amazing. And they told her they wanted her to play the witch. And she was like, oh, no, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> but um, Margaret Hamilton um, really did a good job. And she's responsible for probably every Internet um, based joke ever. Uh, relating to the Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West, um, where she goes, and I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too, which in some respects I think has had a massive impact on the likes of Scooby-Doo, um, where it's like, oh, and it, I could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you you kids. And it's kind of in that similar, it's not the same by all means, by any means, but it's on a similar spectrum. Um, so we have Margaret Hamilton's immortal performance on film of I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. Um, and lots of people describe The Wizard of Oz. A funny little thing as well that I find is when people say, oh, Wizard of Oz is like the ultimate chick flick. Um, it's about two women fighting over a pair of shoes. <laughs> and I don't know how much I, I, I agree with that in some respects, but if you go by some of the 
the stereotypical depictions of um of like the chick flick so to speak in the early years of what was considered a chick flick and you know stereotypes of women in general um but that's one reading which i don't tend to read because i i see it as that the ruby slippers are an all-powerful object and i don't just see them as a pair of shoes i mean yes they are just a pair of shoes but like i don't see the conflict over the shoes as that kind of stereotypical thing even though I'm probably sure people of the day might have made that assumption, they might have made that sleight of hand joke, but um, I, I see the wider picture of this film as, like, it's a struggle for power and the use of innocence and good, I suppose, the good versus evil, as it were, where you get um, an innocent, quite um, good-hearted character in the form of Dorothy using her, um, I don't know, pureness, I suppose, to drive forward what is good for the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the story as it were with um margaret hamilton literally just being like i want the shoes and you killed my sister <laughs> um uh, which is the other point i should point out spoiler alert but her sister the wicked witch of the east um who you might if you watch the stage if you've seen the stage show wicked or you know anything of it have you read the book that the stage show is based upon you would learn a little bit more about the fact that um Elphaba, as the Wicked Witch of the West is actually called, Elphaba in that book, she had a sister, and that sister is the one who wears the ruby slippers um, and gets crushed by Dorothy Gale's house. And um, it's, you know, that that's the pure motivation really behind it. It's like, you killed my sister, those shoes are mine, they're ours, they're powerful, and I just want those shoes back, and, you know, I'm going to get you. That's the simple, basic version of it all. Um, but the, you know, that starts the journey off, and obviously Dorothy gets a helping hand from Glinda, the good witch of the um, North, although I think in the other adaptations she's known as Glinda, the good witch of the South, um, which, you know, depends on what you read, um, but in this film it's Glinda, the good witch of the North, and she helps her along the way, including defeating a, a sleeping spell that the Wicked Witch puts upon them later in the film in a lovely sequence. One of my highlights of the film is the poppy field sequence where... The Lion, the Scarecrow, Tin Man and Dorothy and Toto, they're all together and they're on the way to the Emerald City and they take a shortcut to go across a poppy field and the poppies are induced with like a sleeping potion or something and they, they all fall asleep apart from obviously the um, apart from the uh, the Tin Man who who isn't alive technically but like all the organic creatures fall asleep so like Toto, the Cowardly Lion, Dorothy um, but the others because they're they're sentient, but they're not quite sentient. They stay awake. Um, and then we get the Glinda sprinkling some snow to dispel the uh, Wicked Witch's spell, um, which then in turn rusts the Tin Man. So, you know, it's never a win-win for anyone. Um, but throughout, you get all sorts of hijinks like that. It's a brilliant film in the sense that you can just watch it and relax. It's not like a, it's not a David Lynch film by any means. It's not complex. It's not, you know, for little children, it might be terrifying. I mean might even be terrifying for adults for the Wicked Witch of the West, but <laughs> I do feel that the film is a, a brilliant statement on how classical Hollywood could get it right. Um, and whilst some characters you could say, I mean, although Dorothy Judy Garland leads the film, she's not exactly Ellen Ripley, let's put it that way. Um, Ella, you know, she leads the characters and she does stand up for herself and she, you know, she's independent in some respects but then you know that's kind of kiboshed and put out the window because uh you know she's putting that damsel in distress 
uh, scenario where she's put in, literally put in a tower like a damsel in distress um, character type, and she does a lot of crying. Um, but she's got a lovely voice, and to be honest, that's one of the reasons I think if we look historically at the studio system, the studio system was quite a cruel system, and they picked they picked up on various qualities of their actors and actresses, particularly the actresses, I would say, felt the most pain out of all um, those in the business of the Hollywood era uh, in like MGS, so Metro Goldwyn Mayer or Warner Brothers, where they had specific traits and they were really good and they really enhanced them and said, oh, we'll really sell that. They sold it like a, a commercial, commercialized machine. But the ultimate goal you know they they did chop and change them and if you another note if anyone's into um researching hollywood and how the studio system worked there's an interesting film so the judy garland version of a star is born um from the 1950s i believe 1954 um stars uh, judy garland as an up and coming uh, hollywood starlet and it's very strange because it's hollywood doing hollywood because it presents us with what the studio system was like. There's a whole entire sequence where they present um, Judy Garland's character going through mass changes, so she has to change her name, because obviously Judy Garland wasn't actually her name, it was Frances Gum. Uh, if you watch the film Judy, which stars Renée Zellweger, you'll learn a little bit more about that as well, to build a, a slight bigger picture of that, but I encourage you to sort of look that up after the podcast if you want to learn more about it, because there's only so much I can say, and, you know, books speak volumes quite literally in some respects. But the the thing with Judy Garland is, you know, she was a very a, a very talented young lady. We lost her too soon. She died at a very tender age, um, very young, in her 40s, I believe. And she, uh, you know, very talented, especially in The Wizard of Oz. And I come back to The Wizard of Oz because it's the role that Judy Garland was known for the most and especially Somewhere Over the Rainbow. It's the song that they, she would sing, and you would just get oh, chills down your spine. I watch the film, and I get chills down my spine every time watching it, and the like, hair standing on end. Uh, it's a lovely film, um, heartwarming, a bit of fantasy peril with the Wicked Witch, and, you know, moments where... <laughs> moments, Lots of moments of comedy with the... You know, the Munchkins are, have their moments of comedy and like the way they present themselves to Dorothy as their saviour in the beginning um, you have the flying monkeys which are probably terrifying to children but when you grow up you probably realise how funny the costumes are but for the, those days the costume was quite good <laughs> but yeah the flying monkeys are quite interesting uh, and also the entire sequence with the, the cowardly lion is just comedy gold all the time because uh, because Bert Lahr had to do a lot of physical work in that massive costume uh and he's very, very skilled that he can pull off all these physical attributes and being quite limited in his movement as well, because it's not like, not like in Cats, uh, probably, <laughs> to, to give one example, in Cats where they're all like CGI'd um, together, so computer-generated um, skin onto their actual body so they could move in like spandex and move however they want and contort themselves in various different ways. With Bert Lars' character, you couldn't do that. I think the most flexible, other than obviously people who didn't have massive cost, weird prosthetics and costumes on, I think the most flexible was probably the Scarecrow, uh, especially when he falls over all over the place in If Only I Had a Brain uh, in his introductory song. But yeah, Bert Lars and the Tin Man, 
uh, Jack Haley didn't really have much flexibility in terms of their movement and the costumes, especially Bert Lars as the line, were quite heavy. So they had to sort of learn to deal with that. And I know with the Tin Man, the costume, there's a history with the costume of how... Uh, the I think it was the the face paint uh the makeup uh it was very I think it was not acidic but it was quite dangerous and initially that it caused an allergic reaction with I think the original because there was a man who originally played the Tin Man I forget I forget the man's name but it's um it caused a very bad reaction to the I think it was lead it was lead based so it caused him to choke a little bit like suffocate a little bit uh, I don't think he died um but he. They suffered so much with that, so they had to change their makeup tact. And also, on top of that, they had to get a new Tin Man. So Jack Haley came in. Um, and it's a very turbulent production, as I said. They went through various um, people to direct it. Um, Mervyn Leroy, the producer at MGM, had a big headache making this film. But I think, ultimately, it pays off. And, like I said, it's a musical, so there's lots of... I'll give you a roundup of my favourite songs. I would say... Uh, ding dong the witch is dead you can't go wrong with that it gets stuck in your head so ding dong the witch is dead and um i'm I'm not going to sing them all for you because i will yeah ter- terrible singing voice and at the same time no one needs to hear that uh <laughs> go and listen to the original soundtrack uh it's very catchy um and it, it becomes quite a big again it's another one that's been a big influence on popular culture um probably sometimes for the wrong reasons so i know for a fact that it entered the charts when uh, when Margaret Thatcher died, which was a, a little bit tragic to say the least. Um, but I know at the same time, I know where, uh, like, it's because of the way history has melded itself and people associate different songs with different people. So obviously the songs of The Wizard of Oz are known widely. They can get associated with different topics, political or non-political, um, like I just said, but they also can have this um, element of of, you know, inspiration for the other films and television shows that are built on it. So, for instance, um, the 1980 film Fame, directed by um, Alan Parker, who recently, as of the recording of this episode, uh, has passed away. Um, rest in peace, Alan Parker. L- wonderful director. Um, but his... So his film Fame spawned a TV series of um, from running from 1982 to 87, Um which was a little sat more sanitized than it was than the film actually portrayed the events and the life of a performing arts school but the point i'm trying to make here is the um i go off on a tangent but the ep- there's one episode i think it's in the second season of fame and it presents the cast of the kids of fame in their very own wizard of oz special episode based around the character um uh, the character of doris uh, and it, she, uh, one of the kids in the school, and each of the main characters, they play their own versions of the Tim Man, uh, the Lion, the Scarecrow, and Dorothy. Because they're literally, I think that a dog came into the into the, the one episode, and then that became Toto for the rest of the episode. Uh, and I think he was actually called Toto throughout it, whether it was that or whether it was planned to or not. Um, or whether they were going to keep an original name, who knows, but that was an inspiration. They did their own Wizard of Oz episode, but they actually did black and white going into colour, and they they made the whole the set of the School of the Arts into their own version of Oz. So the canteen was the deadly canteen, uh, and, you know, and there was cupboards on the way to, like, the, the cleaner's closet, janitor's closet, which... um 
became like a forbidden part of like a forbidden light forest set setting and then um <laughs> the english teacher who usually not many people liked was well, she was quite stern became the wicked witch of the west um and the dance teacher was the um the good witch played by the wonderful debbie allen it was it's amazing and then you get all sorts of other parody versions of it and the other thing i would like to you know references to somewhere over the rainbow and follow the yellow brick road the other thing i'd like to point out is the i say sequel to the wizard of oz it was um it's a sequel in in lots of respects but it doesn't because the girl who plays dorothy is very much based on what the original book would have been like and clearly not uh, you know, the next stage beyond the events of the film Wizard of Oz, which we're, which we've mentioned a lot today. Um, but the film Return to Oz, directed by um, Frank Oz, ironically, uh, uh, sorry, directed by um, Walter Murch, and starring, uh, I think it's involving Frank Oz with all the puppetry, because it's got, a, it's a bit like, if you like Jim Henson products, you should like the cult classic that is Return to Oz. Um, but yeah, uh, Frank Oz is, uh, as well as sharing the same first name as Frank Morgan, who played the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, um, and the travelling uh, fortune teller, Mr. Marvel. Uh, Frank Oz <laughs> took a took a bet on Walter Murch, the sound designer who did who went forward with his directorial debut into uh, the land of oz it's very creepy i can't say much more on it because i think you should watch it if you can find it i know the wizard of oz is available on various streaming services i think um and you can buy it on dvd and blu-ray if you wish to collect it um the return to oz isn't available as widely i think you can only really get it on dvd at the moment i'd like to see a blu-ray restoration that'd be very good but the return to oz it, it expands on the universe it uses stuff from the l frank baum books um it changes a lot of things, but it's very creepy. The Wheelers, that's all I'm going to say. The Wheelers, if you watch that, you know. Um, if, you, if you've if you seen it, let me know. Um, tweet us or message us on the relevant social medias on Twitter. Um, let us know if you've seen Return to Oz and what you thought of it, because I personally loved it, even though I think it's very creepy. I loved it. It's truly a cult classic to behold. And that's just as far as the extent of, you know, of inspiration for the future as the wizard of oz is created and then you get stuff like oz the great and powerful which is a disney film which came out i think 2014 um which stars james franco um as oz himself and it it charters how he became the wizard of oz now there's a lot of inconsistencies because there's so many different versions you've got wicked the stage show which tells you the story of the witches of oz so glinda and Elphaba, um wicked witch and good witch of the north and west um and you get that canon you've got the um the story canon of you know Oz the great and powerful uh and then you've got the wizard of oz but most people come back to the original wizard of oz and it's truly filled with hope and joy and you know by the end of the film scarecrow looks for a brain tin man looks for a heart and courage is what the cowardly lion des uh, desires the most and you find out really they had them all along they just didn't they didn't believe in themselves enough and i feel that's what really stands at the core of this film and that's what i'm going to leave it at for now it's a film filled with hope and joy and praise and that's what i can say about the film um so i urge you to watch it if you haven't watched it before go ahead and watch the wizard of oz it's an amazing film um 
I would say it's probably one of the less controversial ones of of the classical era because I mean yes the studio system didn't treat uh, its stars very well such as Judy Garland as most people know if you know the history of uh, Marilyn Monroe and other stars like her and Garland but I the film itself stands as a true gem of the era uh, over 80 years old now and it's just it's timeless it, it never ages really it's got stuff that obviously are really relevant to the day uh, you know the static movement of cameras uh, we haven't got as much you know you wouldn't see a steady cam involved in this like Stanley Kubrick used in The Shining but this is purely a joyous film and I really encourage you to watch it um, right now though before we end I'd like to bring your attention to the final part of the podcast and that is your poll which I mentioned earlier so I asked you which one is better or which one's your favorite film of 1939 out of the big hitters so that was the wizard of oz versus gone with the wind now i know i've kind of spoken my case for the wizard of oz throughout this whole podcast but i would say this has been a pretty close call in some respects um but the final result for the poll was 77% versus 23% now when i said it was a close call I was just having you on there, but uh, the 77% was The Wizard of Oz, and the 23% was Gone With The Wind. I kind of knew that it might go that way, but, you know, you never know, it might have surprised you, but that was the result for that um, poll on that uh, debate between The Wizard of Oz and Gone With The Wind. I personally will always go with The Wizard of Oz, because I've made an entire case of it for the whole podcast, but there you have it. Um, so that's just the end of the podcast now. Um, I'm very excited uh, for the next couple of episodes. Um, I believe in a couple of weeks time, I'm going to have a very special guest on with me. I shall make an announcement about that very, very soon. Um, but for now, I shall just leave you. So that's all for the, that's a wrap on Take 97 uh, film podcast, the classical Hollywood Wizard of Oz edition. And I'll speak to you soon. See you later, guys.